Just a warning, there is quite a bit of swearing in this episode, and rather than fill it up with a bunch of bleeps, we decided to just let people speak the way they spoke. Also, and this might be obvious, but as this is an episode about martial arts, please be prepared for depictions of violence. It's 2 a.m. on a hot July night in 1965, and standing on South Archer Avenue in front of a martial arts school, or dojo, is John Keehan, this redheaded 20-something. He used to teach there, but he runs his own karate school now. And these two dojos, they're rivals. Nearby is his buddy Doug Dwyer. The two are karate experts, both black belts. And at this moment, they're seeking to deliver some vigilante justice. A short while earlier, John and Doug had placed dynamite blasting caps on the front of the dojo using scotch tape. They tried several times to set them off, but the fuse wouldn't stay lit and the tape wouldn't stay stuck. Finally, John lit an entire book of matches, burning his hand in the process. When the fuse lit, they jumped into the ride and scurried away. They circled the block to see if their craftsmanship had paid off, hoping to see the front windows blown to smithereens. But it hadn't worked. So John tries to ignite the explosives one more time. But as he approaches the dojo, a police squad shows up, and he dashes for their getaway car idling nearby. John jumps in, and Doug hits the gas, leading police on a high-speed chase. During the pursuit, police see a box with dynamite blasting caps getting tossed from the car. After about a mile, Doug takes a wrong turn down a dead-end alley, and the chase ends. The two are apprehended, taken into custody, and booked. When questioned by authorities, Doug reportedly said it was just a, quote, stupid stunt. They'd been in a spat with this dojo, mostly over money they were owed. I'm producer Joe Dasso, and this week we're digging into a question we got from Curious City listener C.J. Fraley. C.J. wrote, while watching a YouTube documentary, I heard a brief mention of the infamous Chicago Dojo Wars. I'd love to find out more about that. Which brings us back to John. And that night, he and his buddy tried to blow out the front of a rival dojo. It was one of many salvos in what some have come to refer to as the Dojo Wars of Chicago. A series of brawls and incidents between competing martial arts schools all over the city that went on for years. And at the center of many of the wars was John. But what made this incident stand out at the time was the scale of it. Yes, the explosives, but also the violence and grandiosity, and the dead of the nightness of it. But once you learn about John, it all starts to make sense. After the break, John Keehan, military veteran, black belt, hairstylist, troublemaker, and, in his own words, the deadliest man alive. All that, coming up. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Curious City is supported by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? 
BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash CuriousCity today to get 10% off your first month. If you go down the rabbit hole our listeners sent us down, unearthing the story behind Chicago's infamous Dojo Wars, you arrive at one central character, John Kean. His name pops up again and again as you look into the nasty spats that erupted between various rival dojos in the 1960s and 70s. And as you're going down that rabbit hole, you'll bump into Floyd Webb, a local documentarian who began his own quest to unearth John's story more than 15 years ago. I was asking myself, if I knew this journey was going to be this long, would I have even taken it in the first place? That's the first question, right? His research has been a cornerstone of nearly anything of substance done on John's sense. I've been spending a lot of time with Floyd, exchanging emails, talking over research. Hey, Floyd, it's Joe. Hey, Joe, how are you, man? Hey there, how you doing? I'm okay. Is this an okay time to reach you still? Yes, it is. Tracking down one person or fact-checking something or other. Hold on, sorry, hold on one second. I just have to to switch to my headphones. Follow-up phone call after follow-up phone call. Digging deeper to try and figure out just who John was. Floyd knows better than just about anyone. He's had a fascination with John since he was a kid, that to really understand this complicated, often troubled figure, and how his vision would help transform the world of martial arts in the U.S., we need to start at the beginning. John Kean grew up in a well-off Irish-American family. The Kean family is composed of doctors and nuns. His father, John Sr., was a prominent OBGYN, and his mother, a socialite. They grew up in an all-white area of the city at the time. Beverly, on Chicago's far south side. Growing up, John was a scrawny kid, the kind of kid bullies might find an easy target. That's when he meets Tommy Gregory. At the time, Tommy's around eight years old, John nine. Tommy describes himself as a round kid with a short temper. I was a wild son of a bitch. But the way that John and him got to be friends is somebody was taking John's bike from him when they were kids. I was walking around, and so there was a prairie we used to go there looking for snakes and shit like that. And some guys, they were kicking the shit out of John. And so I, I went over there and I kicked the shit out of the two guys. And that's how we met. He was a year older than me. And we saw each other almost every day from that on. Tommy said John was smart, had a great memory. John would read books to him. As adolescents, Tommy and John would cause trouble sometimes. Shoot out neighbors' windows with a BB gun. You know, stupid kid stuff. Floyd says that one day, while John was in his early teens, something happened that would change the course of his life. Somebody was stealing from the basement of his house, and he went to stop the guy, and the guy beat him up. John was shaken by the incident, and his father decided his teenage son needed to learn how to protect himself. So he signed John up for boxing lessons. Kean studied boxing in a black community at Johnny Coolen's gym on 63rd and University. Johnny Coolen was an Irish-American boxer, and he was a private student of Johnny Coolen's. The gym was near John's high school, Mount Carmel, at 64th and Dante. Coolen was a former world champ and vaudevillian showman, and Coolen's gym saw many greats run through it over the years, from Jack Dempsey to Sugar Ray Robinson to Muhammad Ali. If you came into Johnny Coolen's gym and had a problem with black boxers being there, Coolen would tell him, 
get in the ring with him. Let's see what you can do. <laughs> so that's the atmosphere that he started learning uh, his first self-defense. Boxing gave John Keehan the confidence he perhaps needed. This teen was growing into a young man, no longer the scrawny kid who needed to be protected from bullies. The experience also exposed him to people and cultures he wouldn't otherwise have encountered. John was familiar with all of the people in the na- neighborhood. Some of his friends would tell me that, that they were always shocked. They would go out with John, and John would go on the south side to black parties, and everybody knew him, when his friends would be scared to even go over there. They get to sneak into bars and music venues in nearby black neighborhoods, too, even though he and his buddies were all underage. He was training with bouncers from these clubs, and so he could pretty much go any place he wanted to. They used to go see Fats Domino in the clubs. Because, like, back then, 63rd Street, King Drive, and Cottage Grove, and Stony Island, there was all these music clubs. He was a really good-looking guy. Everybody liked going out with John because John always attracted a lot of women. And he was just this really uh, gregarious guy that everybody liked. In 1958, after high school, John enlisted in the military, first the Marines, then the Army. While stationed in California, he became obsessed with martial arts. He devoured books on lethal techniques, spent weekends training with martial arts masters up and down the West Coast, learning various forms of kung fu and karate. And he became really, really proficient at the technical aspect of martial arts, right? There wasn't anything he couldn't do, breaking bricks. You know, sparring, he was really good at all of that. By contrast, John's military record, it wasn't stellar. He was getting into trouble, a pattern that would dog him throughout the rest of his life. According to his FBI file, John had been disciplined numerous times for an array of reasons, ranging from the mundane to the severe. And the impetus for this wild behavior? The Vietnam War was still a few years off, but... Tommy says John was hell-bent on getting discharged before there was even the possibility of going to war. He did all kinds of stupid shit, and he almost didn't get it. What were some of the things that he did? Stole cars, called up the police and said there was a robber in there and had his hands up, started fights, you know what I mean? And, and he kept on getting away with it. He also went AWOL for a while, told the doctors he'd hit himself in the head with a pistol, made several suicide attempts. In the FBI report, they said that he exhibited suicidal tendencies and that he was a dangerous person, which is something that people would do sometimes in order to get out of the military. By the end of 1960, John's deception, if that's what it was, had worked. He was finally kicked out of the military. Back in Chicago, John began to devote himself to becoming a master in karate. John and a friend went so far as to start traveling down to Arizona to train with a man who is often referred to as the father of American karate, Robert Trias. They go out for like weeks at a time. They sleep in the dojo on the floor, or they get a a little room in a flea bag motel, and they stay and they study martial arts. Like John, Robert Trias was a military veteran. They grew close, and Trias became John's mentor. John was prodigious, and by 1961... He was teaching karate classes at dojos around Chicago. He was competing in karate tournaments and winning. Within a year, he opened his own karate schools, the Imperial Academy of Fighting Arts, one on the south side near where he lived in Beverly. 
And there was another spot, located in Chicago's Gold Coast neighborhood, in one of the city's nightlife epicenters. At nighttime, out-of-towners like ourselves will rush out to Rush Street, the heart of the nightclub district. And as our teenagers would say, it's a swinging place. You can think of Rush Street in Chicago as sort of the Times Square or Las Vegas Strip. Plenty of bright neon lights, piano bars and burlesque clubs, steps away from the Playboy nightclub, plus Mr. Kelly's, where you could catch famous performers of the time like comedians Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor, music acts like Barbara Streisand and Herbie Hancock. And nestled just above Mr. Kelly's is where John rented out space to create his dojo on Rush Street. John would often hit Mr. Kelly's and the Playboy Club nearby, schmooze some of the patrons, and drum up some celebrity clients. Now listen to the beat. Like Curtis Mayfield. It all fed into John's developing persona and ego. You got soul, and everybody knows that it's John's reputation was growing as a fantastic fighter and teacher, or sensei. Floyd's seen footage of him fighting, and he's talked with numerous people who trained with and fought against John over the years. Most confirmed the legend he'd heard. John was so skilled. I mean, to see John Keehan do a flying kick, it was like he almost lifted up off the ground. It's like he was able to, like, levitate off the ground to do this, this like, snapping flying kicks. Folks told me that John's students were blue-collar guys. He trained cops, construction workers, people from around the neighborhood. The physical preparedness was incredible. These guys were, like, really tough. He had his students adhere to rigorous training regimens like he'd learned in boxing. Hours of grueling, repetitive, exhausting training. Plus, moves not often used around here, like those high-flying kicks. As a result of that, his students were winning everything. John's students were becoming as badass as he was. Every city had their own local martial arts culture. And here, John Keen was at the top of that already because he was doing more than anybody for the martial arts at that point. By any other measure, John Keen would have been celebrated as sort of a rising star in martial arts. But this was America in the 1960s, and he was going against the status quo. The very first problem John had was the fact that he welcomed black people into his school, right? It was frowned upon. People didn't want it to happen. People I spoke with said nobody was supposed to take black people into their dojos. But John didn't see it that way. He had learned to box in a racially diverse environment and served in the military alongside African-American soldiers. Floyd said it riled up the police as well as community members, especially then in the early days of the black power movement. I mean, it was so bad that there was all these rumors, oh, he's teaching gangbangers and he's teaching criminals, right? And John was teaching the people that he was around because he essentially grew up around these guys. In 1963, John partnered with his karate mentor, Robert Trias, to create the first ever international karate tournament in the U.S. This was a big deal. Karate was still pretty new in American culture, still mysterious. And this was a big grab by Trias to expand his United States Karate Association, the USKA, across the country. For John, this was a chance to expand his growing reputation in martial arts. The tournament was a huge success. The big crowds, the media coverage, and the international attention. But despite all that, 
John came away frustrated. First, he says he got a lot of blowback from Robert Trias and others in the martial arts world for placing black fighters in the competition and because they were winning. And that made people mad. You know, people would go to tournaments and if they saw John students on the competition list, they would leave because they knew that it was a done deal. John was also agitated by certain tournament rules he saw as senseless. The karate tournament was either no contact or light contact. You would be disqualified for excessive contact. Rather than going for knockouts like boxing, a fighter in these karate matches had to pull their punches and kicks back, coming mere inches from striking their opponent. It's more about defending oneself than beating somebody up. For John, none of the technical skills mattered much if he couldn't pull it off in the real heat of battle. You didn't know what you knew until you actually went out and fought somebody. Coming up, John Mix's beauty and ferocity helps catapult martial arts in the U.S. to incredible heights and begins his own descent down a darker, more brutal path. But first, he gets married. All that after the break. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. I'm at the home of Pat Harpold. She's 82, and we're surrounded by a gaggle of animals hanging out during our taping. A dozen cats, a few dogs. Skeeter, Misty, and Cookie. Even a pet pig. The pig is Princess Penelope. Pat has a neurological condition called spasmodic dysphonia, which is why her voice sounds a little shaky. And I'm here because Pat is John Kean's first wife. And she's telling me about the first time John walked into her life. It was in 1964 at a bar not too far from where they grew up. The door opens and in strolls John and one of his buddies. The place was pretty much empty and uh, they just started talking to us and got friendly. She says she fell for his turquoise eyes and thick, curly, auburn hair. He had a blue dress on. John began singing to her. It was the song Devil with the Blue Dress on. And, of course, he was always very entertaining. He had this really outgoing personality and far-out kind of sense of humor at the time. John and Pat started dating, and within a few months, he professed his love. And, out of nowhere, given the casualness of the relationship at that point, he proposed. The ring was really small. With all his grand stuff he did, everything very showman, it was a really tiny little ring. <laughs> now in his mid-twenties, John Kean was becoming cocky, a showman, spending money he didn't quite have on all sorts of things he didn't quite need, including flashy cars, expensive clothing. He had so many side hustles to try and support his lavish lifestyle. Too many to list them all here. John always had different businesses going on. But there's one that stands out. 
About this time, John has become a hairdresser. Another gig that became part of John's evolving, self-created lore. Dealing with the story of John Ken, it becomes, you know, it's so multi-layered. It's like you go in one door, you come out in a whole different world. You know what I mean? You keep opening these doors and you find out different things about the guy. Like the time, according to John's pal Tommy, one day, John came back from a trip downstate with a new friend in his arms. I was there when he brought it home. It was just a little, I mean, little than a regular cat. Tore his tore hands up and everything. That fucking thing was absolutely tearing the shit out of you. But this little cat Tommy's talking about, well, he's not talking about a regular baby feline. He was a lion. Was it like a lion lion or a mountain lion or what was it? It was a fucking African lion. He hadn't been there a couple of minutes, and he was trying to feed this on but He had a little bottle, and we put milk in it. And I remember having to hold all four legs, and then he put the thing in his mouth. But it had real big, long claws, and it had super teeth, and it was as wild as wild could be. This pet lion was also a bit of flash and flex for John. We would go out walking up and down Rush Street with his lion cub on a leash, and people would stop, and everybody wanted to take pictures of us. And, you know, it was just something people didn't see every day. Everybody in the neighborhood knew about John and his lion cub. It became sort of a mascot, attracting more attention to John's dojo. As 1964 rolled on, John worked again with his one-time mentor, Robert Trias, to put on a second national tournament in Chicago. This one even bigger and more ambitious than the first. CBS sent a reporter to Chicago to interview John at his dojo for a spot on national television. The International Karate Championships are being held in Chicago. The reporter is standing in front of a set of jet black double doors. Painted across them in big white letters is the name of John's dojo the Imperial Academy of Fighting Arts, and beneath it, a giant logo, a bloodthirsty black dragon looking ready to pounce. He walks into the room and greets John. And the man behind the championships is Mr. John Keehan. Well, Mr. Keehan, what's karate all about, anyway? Well, karate is a means of self-defense, which is now used as a sport. Is it very popular in the United States? Well, it's very popular, especially here in Chicago, which is about the uh, strongest concentration of karate in this country. Standing inside the practice space alongside the reporter, John seems to be basking in the attention, schmoozing the reporter as John shows off his perhaps greatest fighter, Ray Cooper, Cooper. a black student of John's who is the reigning national karate champion at the time, and he's sparring with another fighter. Now the screaming, this is uh, to increase power, to try to frighten your opponent and give added strength to your techniques. Does it work? Yes, very effectively. Well, how seriously can you injure someone just with your hands or your feet? Well, you can very easily kill someone if you know how to hit them and where to hit them. This is the whole thing. The, uh, the trained over the untrained. The moral of this story, Walter, seems to be don't mess around with students of the Imperial Academy of Fighting Arts. Before signing off, the CBS reporter asked one final question. The same techniques you use in street fighting if someone comes after you? Yes, well, they're very similar, but the self-defense forms are actually made specifically for uh, street fighting and things like that. This is more of a sport aspect, but it could be used in the street. He said it could be used in the street. 
That answer was like a signal of where John Kean and his followers were going next. Uh, CBS News correspondent, huge rut in Chicago. What I do for a living. <laughs> At the time of the Second World Karate Tournament, Floyd Webb, our faithful documentarian, was just a kid, about 10. He was already into watching martial arts on TV and in the movies, and thought it looked pretty cool. When I first became interested in martial arts, it was based on every kid's nightmare, which is being that kid everybody picks on. I was somebody who stuttered, I read a lot of books. One day, Floyd saw a flyer for this USKA tournament. It turned out, the event was taking place not too far from the Harold Ickes public housing project at 22nd and State where he grew up. So, on the day of the tournament, Floyd and his buddies walked down to the Chicago Coliseum at 15th and Wabash, less than a mile from where they lived. We went down to the Coliseum, paid our money, went in to this incredible crowd of about, a, about like one or two thousand people. I've never seen it. It looked like a fight card. Inside, they wandered the floor trying to catch one match or another. Instead of like a three-ring circus, it's like a 12-ring circus. And he was awed by the number of faces of color he saw in both the crowd and on the mats. Floyd and his friends were taking everything in, in ways that kids sometimes do. And that's when he met John. Me and my friends had a habit of kind of being nuisances when we went into places. And we're running around and suddenly Kean stops us. He says, what are you guys doing? You just run out all over the place. And he says, here, come with me. He takes us and he sits us down right in front of this competition. Floyd felt pretty special getting that attention from John and the chance to sit up front and close to the action. We're watching things like people's teeth get knocked out and the fight being stopped and the people picking the teeth off, off the ground and going back to fighting. You know, for a no-contact tournament, there was a lot of contact. For John... The moments of brutality that periodically crept in during tournaments were just the kind of blood sport he was hoping to make the standard. In an interview with Black Belt Magazine, the premier martial arts publication of the time, John said, If ever any of my students are hit, and I mean intentionally, I just tell my students to open up and finish them off. I tell my students to pulverize these guys. According to Floyd, John's stock immediately rose following the incredible success of the 1964 tournament. Interest in his school spiked, especially among black students. He was even promoted to head instructor of the USKA and celebrated as one of the top karate instructors in the U.S. by Black Belt magazine. But that doesn't mean that the relationship between John and Trias was going well. They were at odds over a number of issues, including John's interest in starting his own national organization, the World Karate Federation, a competitor to the USKA. The relationship became so frayed that Trias wanted to sever ties with John altogether. And by the end of the year, Trias had expelled John, his former partner and mentee from the USKA. It's said that it was over John's outsized personality and inclination toward violence. In the USKA's official press release, they listed conduct unbecoming the true spirit of karate do, said he undermined the true karate way. John saw it differently. He told Black Belt magazine that the fallout with Robert Trias and the USKA was over race. He was promoting his black students to Black Belt, and he was granting Black Belt students people who put in the work and who were victorious in their tournaments. John said that the only black people in the entire USKA at that point were his students. And so when Trius came to Chicago and saw John had given 
black students, black belts. John said Trias didn't like that one bit. And when he mentioned this to John, John told him he didn't care what he thought about it, that it was his school, he was going to promote whoever he wanted to, that was qualified to have a black belt. He didn't care what Robert Trias, the USKA, or anybody else had to say about it. And that's what they split over. And I'm sure there was some money involved too, right? Because you, you wouldn't believe how many people turned up for these tournaments. Around the country, people were hearing about the exploits and philosophies of this young martial arts master from Chicago with an increasingly aggressive streak, and they'd come to the Windy City to seek his training. Many became followers of his, like this one kid out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Art Rapkin. I was labeled as like a bad guy because I was a nonconformist. Art was just 16 when he learned about John. He'd been kicked out of both his karate school and his high school for fighting, and John's style appealed to Art. I wanted to study from a real master. I wanted to be like a deadly motherfucker type of guy. John had Art train under one of his students, another one of John's tough guys. The better he got, the more brutal the training became. John forced his most advanced students to go through a rite of passage before gaining higher degree belts, kind of like a beat-in. This wasn't like a karate today where you take your kids and they're taught leadership. In the dojo, you'd have to fight numerous guys. Like, you'd have to spar with maybe, say, four guys. Art said after fending off your first attacker coming at you full force, you'd have to fend off the next, then the next, and the next, all without rest. And then they would all circle you all four in a room with a dim light in the hallway. They'd shut off the dojo lights. And they all had sticks knives. If they got you, if they cut you, like my arms have a lot of scars from being cut, they got rewarded. So you had to prove that you were worthy of this promotion, of this status. And they all got beer or whatever the fuck they got, hamburgers, if they got you. But even that wasn't enough for John. Art said one of John's ways to make sure his students were able to protect themselves was to put them in a quote-unquote real-world scenario. Like, say, at the neighborhood tavern. Well, that happened more than once. We'd be sitting in a bar, and they laugh when they think about it, but we'd be walking by, and there'd be some guy sitting at the bar, maybe holding a beer bottle in his right hand, dangling kind of at his side, talking to a buddy. And we'd be walking by him, and John would just, with his hand at his side, just knock the beer bottle out of the guy's hand. And then the guy would look at me. And the guy might have been 26 years old, and six foot one, 220. And I'm like 5'11", 175 maybe. And then John would look at me and go, why the fuck did you do that? In front of you. And that's how it would start. And whoever that guy was with, you'd have to fight him too. And if he was with four guys, you'd have to fight them too. By the end of 1964, early 1965, John was facing a number of challenges. Many of his students, even many of his black students, abandoned him for the more established and respected USKA. The irony being that they were finally welcomed there, 
thanks in part to John's stubborn determination. And John's longtime friend Tommy, who'd helped him build, manage, and maintain his dojos over the years, parted ways with John over money. He says John paid him poorly, if at all, while spending extravagantly on himself. And as a result of that extravagant spending, John's finances were in a downturn too. According to his then-wife Pat, he had declared bankruptcy. He even had to rehome his pet lion, no longer a cub, as it had grown to a size and a fierceness that John couldn't handle any longer. On the next episode of Curious City, part two of the story of John Kean and the infamous Chicago Dojo Wars. Those fights were like Tarantino movies with the martial arts things like in Kill Bill. They got out of hand. New characters emerge. I was the Playboy Bunny who had a black belt. Plus, a supervillain arises, complete with a cape and tights, and touts himself as the deadliest man alive. Count Dante was famous before Bruce Lee. That's next time in this two-part Curious City story. A big thanks to Floyd Webb. His research over the years as he's worked on a yet unreleased documentary on the life of John Kean is instrumental in our understanding of the man. And that era when John loomed large over the city's martial arts community brought it national acclaim and notoriety. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and me. Adriana cardona McGigot is our reporter and Maggie Civit is our digital and engagement producer. Marie Mendoza is WBEZ's podcast fellow. Susie Ahn and Johanna Zorn edit the show. A special farewell to Johanna Zorn for shepherding Curious City over the past many months. And a big old belated welcome to Susie Ahn, who will keep us working feverishly harder and smarter as our team continues to answer the curious questions our listeners have about the city and our region. I'm Joe Dassault. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.